And the difference between a beginning practitioner and a more skilled practitioner is not getting into the pose, but it's how long you can hold it. And that makes quite a difference. And that's what surprised me at how physically challenging yoga was when I started it. It looked like a walk in the park. It looked very simple. And there was more to it than I recognized at first. And, you know, a lot of guys have to get over the embarrassment of not being generally as supple as women. Women are more flexible on average. Now, there are exceptions. But in a mixed class of men and women, the women will look better holding the pose than the men will. Welcome to Guys Talking Yoga, a podcast designed to raise awareness of the many benefits of yoga by sharing the stories and insights of regular guys. I'm your host, Derek Vanderwalker, and today's conversation is with 30-year yoga practitioner, Knight Kiplinger, an economic journalist who is editor emeritus of the Kiplinger Financial Media Company. Known for the weekly Kiplinger Letter, the monthly Kiplinger's personal finance magazine, and dailykiplinger.com. Knight was CEO and publisher until the sale of the company in 2019. He is one of America's most respected economic journalists and business forecasters, and he's known for cutting through the complexity of financial subjects with clarity and foresight, and does know less in our conversation about the many benefits of yoga he's experienced over the last 30 years. So, Knight, great to have you, and thank you for joining us. Derek, I'm pleased to be with you. So before we get into hearing about how you got into yoga, I'd love for you to provide a little context for the listeners on yourself and the Kiplinger Publishing Organization. Sure thing. I'm a lifelong journalist focusing on the economy, on investing, on personal finance. And for 30-some years, I headed the Kiplinger Publishing and Media Company. And we're known for the Kiplinger Washington Letter, a weekly business forecasting letter, Kiplinger's personal finance magazine. And I am semi-retired today. I don't still run the company, but I'm still editor emeritus, participating in editorial meetings, reviewing draft pages of the weekly Kiplinger Letter, and trying to be useful. I know many people who are in the investment community are very familiar with the Kiplinger Personal Finance Newsletter in your organization. Many of them probably aren't familiar with the fact that you have a yoga practice, and it's not just a recent yoga practice. You've been doing yoga for a number of years. Where were you in your life, and who introduced you to yoga? Okay, let's roll back the clock a few decades. I was in my late 40s. I was the sort of uh, type A guy who equated fitness and exercise and good health with grueling, hot, sweaty sports. I played tennis, I hiked, I biked, I did all those things. Good cardiovascular exercise, good aerobic exercise. And I was probably one of those guys who was sort of skeptical about yoga. I think I associated yoga with sort of... uh, California hippies, new age stuff. The hit song the year I was married, 1979, was that wonderful song, Escape, the Pina Colada song. (laughs) And in it, the guy's looking for a perfect mate who isn't into yoga and has half a brain. (laughs) 
And I think that was sort of the popular image of of yoga, especially among red-blooded American males. It didn't have a positive connotation in your mind. No, it was not a positive connotation. Of course, the joke of the song is after he places his In Search of Romantic ad, the person who responds is his own wife. So my wife, Anne, started doing yoga on the recommendation of some friends. And she'd been doing yoga for several years, and I was still doing all my hot, sweaty, macho male type A exercises and sports and things like that. I saw the positive effect it had on her health and fitness and her mental state and all that, but still, I was kind of skeptical, and I didn't really have a way to start it. Then one day, a colleague of mine at the Kiplinger Publishing Organization, one of our editors, comes to me and says, Knight, a few of us in the office would like to start some yoga classes in the office, in the workplace. And I've got a teacher, and she can come in a couple of days a week during the lunch hour and after work, 5 p.m., a couple of days of work. Can we give it a try? And I said, you not only have my permission and have the use of space in the office, but I'd like to subsidize these classes for our employees. Because I had a, a growing positive feeling about yoga through my wife. So you got married in 1979. You didn't come around to yoga until some years later, right? You were kind of aware of it. And bringing it to your organization was sometime in the late 80s or early 90s? Yes, I think it was probably the early 90s. And I'm thinking if I'm going to sponsor these classes at the company and subsidize the employees taking the classes, I ought to see what I'm getting for my money as an employer. (laughs) I ought to give it a try. So I go down and I attend one of these classes. And I'm the guy at the back of the room who is very inflexible who feels like a klutz. And it quickly dawns on me, this this is no walk in the park. This is rather demanding, physically demanding, especially for a newcomer. Yeah. And after that first class, I realized that I had had a workout of muscles I didn't even know I had or hadn't used for many years. I went home feeling... uh, pleasantly fatigued and really mellow Uh as much from the the deep breathing as from the poses themselves and more about that later so i started attending the classes i wouldn't go to the lunchtime class because then my afternoon would be shot i would be zoned out i would be so relaxed and mellow sometimes i feared i lost that competitive edge So I started doing it at the office, and I'd miss a lot of classes. They often conflicted with my business travel and my my meetings and all that. But what I took away from those classes were the poses, the stretches, the twists, the deep breathing that brought me the greatest satisfaction and apparent benefit of stress reduction. So I do them myself at home. I started doing a brief yoga practice every morning at home. Sometimes in the middle of a really bad day at the office, I would close the office door, loosen my tie, take off my shoes, 
lie down on the floor and do 15 or 20 minutes of yoga, and I found it refreshing. I would be much better company for the rest of the day. Things that would normally have really gotten to me and messed up my mind for the rest of the day, I could keep in perspective. I don't know if my colleagues saw a difference in me, but I saw a difference in myself. Mm -hmm. And it's not that I was any less discerning or demanding of high standards. I was just able to put things in better perspective. Yeah. And I just want to hit two things that you mentioned that stuck out to me is one, during the workday, there's a lot of sitting for most people. So there's a physical aspect of probably the ergonomics of the day, right? So that wears on you. Two is the stress of having to make decisions and deal with stuff and communicate and all the things that come out of working with large teams and large groups. And those two things can kind of snowball together, how it feels in your body and just what's going on with your mind with stress. And you don't need to have a 90-minute yoga class in the middle of the day. You could if you've got the time or the opportunity. But sometimes that 15 or 20 minutes gives you an opportunity to check in with your body and your mind, your breath, and lets you kind of set yourself up for a more successful afternoon or a better afternoon to navigate whatever's coming your way. That's very well put. To me, the mindful breathing, the prana, is as important as the muscle stretches. Sometimes in terrible Washington, D.C. traffic, I will find myself in gridlock. I hear horns honking around me, road rage, all this sort of thing. And if it's true gridlock and it's not moving, I will shut my eyes for a minute and I'll do some deep breathing. And it puts things in perspective. I I can't move. There's nothing I can do about it. Honking the horn's not going Uh to help. But I can just calm down a a little bit. As I began to practice yoga, I was thinking of some of the old adages a grandmother would say to an angry child, getting more and more furious. She would say, take a deep breath and count to ten. Well, taking a deep breath and counting to 10, especially on the exhalation of that deep breath, uh, is really uh, a key aspect of the benefit uh, of yoga. I do this on airplanes. I do it sometimes in a business meeting. (laughs) I don't shut my eyes, (laughs) but I will take a deep breath and slowly exhale and Before I say something snarky or sarcastic at the business meeting, I will take that deep breath and count to 10 and think better of what I might have been about to say. The most tangible, physical, and almost medical benefits that I began to experience in my late 40s and early 50s as I started yoga related to long-standing health issues I had that persisted despite my being physically fit and and active. I used to have lower back pain. I used to have headaches that were probably tension headaches of the tight muscles at at the base of the neck and the tight muscles of the shoulder cords. And after a few months of yoga, it dawned on me that I didn't have that lower back pain that I used to have. It had been months since I had popped an Excedrin or an Advil for a headache. And I rarely have headaches today, 
But if I feel a headache coming on, I use a few minutes of yoga as a preventive to head it off, literally. Yeah. And it's really very, very effective. My late father and I shared lower back pain. And he'd go to an osteopath, a chiropractor, orthopedic surgeons, all this sort of stuff. And I figured that was an inevitable part of my older years as well. But it turns out the yoga is the preventive that headed that off. I feel very much the same way that if I'm about to travel or if I just know the stress level is going up for whatever reason it is, even five or 10 minutes, just getting on a mat, just lying on your back, literally just taking a minute to check in, turn off the TV, turn off the phone, just give yourself a minute. And you're right. It's sort of like a shock absorber. It's helping you decompress before things start to escalate and get worse in your body or whatever you're dealing with that day. And you become much more in tune with when you need to do that stuff and what you need to do. Because sometimes you got to do a little twist in your back or you got to do a couple down dogs or it's pulling the knees up to your chest. Like you, you kind of learn what your body needs and when it needs. It's true. While my wife was developing her yoga practice, she also took an interest in Buddhism and especially the writings of Thich Nhat Hanh, the mm-hmm. remarkable Vietnamese monk who died just a few years ago at a very advanced age. And the concept of mindful living, of slowing down and savoring the moment, living in the moment more, being present in the moment. And I said, I'm going to start mindful eating, and she would kid me about it. And, and I'd say, yes, I'm not going to eliminate chocolate cream pie or key lime pie. I'm going to have one mindful bite, and I'm going to savor that bite as if it's the last bite of key lime pie I ever eat in my life. And that one bite can be a substitute for snarfing down the two pieces of key lime pie I used to have. Yeah. And they're really very, very similar impulses, slowing down a bit, thinking more carefully, considering major decisions, purchases, life decisions, and not rushing into them as much. So I I think it's part of the same mindset. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that becomes that whole mind-body connection, that mindset of checking in when you're in traffic, that mindset of slowing down at the table, that mindset of being aware of your footing and your balance as you're walking down the street or on a tennis course or hitting the golf ball or skiing. You just have that sense where you start to know and feel and be more aware of what's going on with your body and mind. And therefore, you you can make better decisions about what you want to do versus just totally reacting and not rushing through it. So much of life now is about multitasking and rushing through stuff. So I've become very appreciative of the fact that you can always roll out a mat or, or take a step back literally and figuratively and check in. And, and the more you do that, the easier and more accessible that opportunity becomes over time. It could be, just becomes instinctual that I need to do this or I need to do that because I can start feeling my body or I know that I need to slow down. I totally agree. 
So Knight, as you look back on your career and your path with yoga, did you find that you were somewhat unique being at the C-level of an organization and having a yoga practice? You know, Derek, I'm not sure. I gave an interview to the New York Times some years ago, and I mentioned this in the interview, and it appeared in print. And I got a very excited call from the editor of Yoga Journal, <laughs> who wanted <laughs> to know more, more about this. So maybe it was still sort of uncommon. I bet there are a lot more closet yoga practitioners out there at the upper levels of management than we're aware of. That That's a very good question. I know that in the Saturday morning yoga class that I go to now, it's a class that my friends and I jokingly call couples yoga <laughs> because there are a number of husbands and wives who go to this class together. And among these husbands and wives, and I, I'm not sorting them by, by gender, there are lawyers, economists, medical doctors, a bank president. There are a number of highly accomplished, successful, and, oh yes, a bit long in the tooth, a bit senior people in this class. And the men especially say they wish they had discovered this much sooner than they did. Mm. And a number of the men some of them my age now started yoga at, say, 50 or so, as I did, and wish they had started it earlier. It's great to hear the number of men in those classes that you do with your community. Part of my interest with this podcast is that, you know, a lot of younger people are getting into yoga. They're aware of it. They're sort of way ahead of the rest of us. But there's a large bucket of guys midlife that didn't grow up with yoga being accessible, and they haven't quite come across it yet. And I, I think it's going to become more of the norm for a lot of retirees, many men, doing yoga because they know it's great for balance, it's great for stress, it's great for healthy joints, healthy bones. It's kind of a no-brainer, and it, it will allow people to enjoy the other activities and sports that they love to do longer in their lives. And they'll have the ability to also know when to back off because that mind-body connection really kind of gives you a great signal for how you're feeling in your balance and your gait. And that just helps you avoid injury and other things. Well, it's really true. I mean, athletes have known for a very long time that they should do a few minutes of basic calisthenics, especially stretching, before whatever sport they're about to undertake. The benefits are really enormous. Uh, a lot of older Americans are getting into uh, simple weight training. You know, they're not trying to impress anybody with pressing 200 pounds or anything like that, but they're using weights to tone the muscles. It improves bone health. The challenge of yoga actually is holding the pose. And the difference between a beginning practitioner and a more skilled practitioner is not getting into the pose, but it's how long you can hold it. And that makes quite a difference. And that's what surprised me at how physically challenging yoga was when I started it. It looked like a walk in the park. It looked very simple. And there was more to it than I recognized at first. And, you know, 
a lot of guys have to get over the embarrassment of not being generally as supple as women. Women are more flexible on average. Now, there are exceptions, but in a mixed class of men and women, the women will look better holding the pose than the men will. And the men have to get over that. You're going to feel like a klutz. You're going to look like a klutz. You're going to want to stay in the back row of the class. So you're watching others and they're not watching you. But my wonderful teacher, Luz Cabrera, part of her wisdom is telling everybody, don't force it. Don't hold something that's unnatural for you or is hurting. Get into it gradually. Do what you can. And you will get great benefit out of attempting it for as long as you can. And you'll get better over time, but don't push it. Yes. And I think for me in my practice, where I've learned the greatest growth is, is that if you can get into a pose and as you say, hold it for a little bit longer and you start to fatigue, learning how to breathe easy and have a little bit of that edge where you're in control, you're not going to get hurt, but you're starting to feel the challenge. And then at a certain point, staying in control and just breathing easy, just come out of the pose at that point. And over time, your body just learns. It's neuroplasticity for your whole body. The muscles and nervous system learn to hold poses longer. If you play it safe, if you listen to your body that you're not in any pain and just pay attention to those fatiguing muscles and breathe easy, you know, people are going to get stronger real soon over time. So Knight, you've got an extensive background with investing and personal finance for somebody who wasn't necessarily super knowledgeable about investing in personal finance when I was younger, didn't have a yoga practice. Now that I've become a little bit more savvy about both, I see a lot of parallels in smart, prudent investing and personal finance, as well as the principles around having a easy, steady yoga practice. Do you see an overlap between those two topics? You know, I I think you're onto something there, Derek. At Kiplinger, we were an early champion of fundamental principles of good investing and good money management, which over decades came to be known as conventional wisdom. But when Kiplinger was first espousing these principles in the 1940s, 50s, early 1960s, a lot of Americans were unfamiliar. Principles of regular, systematic investing using payroll deposit from your paycheck into mm-hmm. a brokerage account, into a IRA or a 401k, putting your investing on autopilot, the concept of paying yourself first before you pay any other bills, pay that money into your own savings and investment accounts for future financial security. Kiplinger has always been about slow and steady wins the race. No get-rich-quick schemes, no hot stock pick of the day. Using diversified, balanced mutual funds and stock index funds to accumulate wealth gradually. So I think the analogy in the in the the physical realm, you have fiscal fitness and physical fitness. The analogy would be doing a few things every day in a systematic way rather than the big splurge. 
you know, there there are guys who, without necessarily a safe degree of fitness, will go off on the 50-mile bike track, and they get much more benefit out of 30 minutes of yoga on their bedroom carpet before they dress and go to work in the morning or uh-huh. taking that weekly class with a really skilled instructor. You know, yoga is a big industry today, and there are expensive resorts where you can go and do yoga under a waterfall in Hawaii or something like that. That might be very inspirational. It might be a great motivator, but it's not necessary. And you can do a few minutes of yoga yourself each day using the asanas and and the prana that you've learned from your class. And you will get as much benefit out of that low-key personalized practice as you would from a week at the expensive resort. Uh-huh. So yeah, there, there are parallels there. Uh, Kiplinger's magazine was the first magazine of personal finance guidance in 1947. By the go-go 90s, the late 1990s, there were half a dozen magazines competing with Kiplinger's, the first magazine. They're all gone today. Money Magazine, Smart Money Magazine, Family Money Magazine, they're all gone. Only Kiplinger's Personal Finance is still published monthly, read by more than 700,000 subscribers. So Slow and Steady has served our Kiplinger subscribers very well. And I think there's an analogy there in in the physical fitness realm as well. Well said. The metaphor I think about just listening to you talk is kind of peeling off your savings or investings a little bit with each paycheck. You know, peeling off 10 minutes, 20 minutes into a yoga practice a day, it's not like that little practice that day happens and disappears you link it to the next day. You, you continue to build on it. And I keep thinking about compound interest. You know, you invest in a stock portfolio. It's a diversified portfolio. Your yoga practice is a totally diversified exercise routine. Some days it's a little different and it just builds and it builds and it builds slowly. And pretty soon as you get into your 70s and 80s, you've got a wealth of knowledge about your body and You've basically been taking care of your nest egg, your body, for years. And you're in a place that's ultimately outperformed probably most of the other portfolios in the room because you've been chipping away and investing in it. And I just think it's a very practical, accessible, and logical way to big long-term health. And that's the most important wealth. Well, I, I think that's that's true. Among my friends from high school and college. I'm one of the few who has all of his original factory equipment. I have my original <laughs> manufacturer's parts. The, the The irony here is that many of my friends from high school and college who are the best athletes and serious competitive athletes, football players, lacrosse players, track stars, they took quite a toll on their bodies. And a lot of them are getting new knees and new hips and all that sort of thing today. And they kid me, uh, you never worked your body terribly hard in high school. You know, we were out there banging up our knees playing catcher on the baseball team or linebacker on the football team, and and you weren't. And they're right about that. I was not 
a great competitive athlete as a boy. I ran track some, but I wasn't much of an athlete. But I didn't wear out my body as some of my friends did. And you weren't making withdrawals early on. (laughs) I was not. So I just sort of lucked into better physical condition now in my early 70s. And I had great admiration for my friends who were successful competitive athletes. But in, in retrospect, they worked the machine pretty hard and are paying a bit of a price for it today. Well, Knight, listen, this has been great to finally connect. I appreciate you sharing your path with yoga. You've been doing it for a couple of decades now, and it clearly is obvious that it's kept you in great health in many ways. And so just thank you again for joining us and sharing your story. Well, I'm happy to. You know, the old adage, I wish I had known then what I know now. So if there are any guys in their 40s or early 50s listening to this, I hope they'll give it a try and stick with it because it'll pay great dividends in every sense of the word. Well said. Knight, thank you again and looking forward to staying in touch. All right, Derek. Thank you. You know, coming out of that conversation with Knight, it struck me. Having a sound long-term financial planning strategy is similar to having a steady yoga practice. With both disciplines, the great gains are made with small investments. With the former, it's making small contributions from your paycheck to your 401k. With the latter, it's making small commitments with your time to your mat. And it builds every time you make an investment. Sure, initially it doesn't look like much, but over 10 or 20 years, you're more likely to be in a place of comfort, appreciation, and gratitude than most other guys your age. So consider the time invested in your yoga practice a form of compound interest. The eighth wonder of the world, as Albert Einstein suggested, he who understands it earns it, he who doesn't pays it. What are you waiting for? 